Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Haggai, chapter 2. Last time we were together, as you were turning there, let me just make some opening remarks. We relished and reflected on the beauty and wonder of a relationship with Christ. There was this refrain, and we need to remember it all the time as we struggle through and persevere in our sanctification, that is, give me Jesus. And we thought about his beauty, and we thought about his sacrifice, and we thought about the blessing then of obedience, and the blessing of obedience, according to Haggai, one of the many blessings, one of the two major blessings, is the fact that we are reconciled to him, not in relative to the quantity of our relationship, whether it exists or not, but relative to the quality of our relationship, that we now, those who were disobedient to our Lord, are now now in obedience, brought near, brought into communion, cleansed in that way, like 1 John 1 talks about, with him. And it reminds us that obedience is beautiful because Christ and knowing him and loving him is the best thing in our existence. And all of this is so fitting in the book of Haggai because like we've been talking about, the book of Haggai is a practical book. It is a book that instructs the people of God in obedience and the purpose of God. And Haggai, like a good coach, goes step by step by step in reproving people, reproving the saints of where they have gone wrong, teaching them what it is like to repent, showing that God accepts that repentance, showing the nature then of true obedience in that. And even more, Haggai demonstrates why believers should persevere in that obedience. The name Haggai, and I don't know if we've emphasized this enough, it means my feast. You say, why is Haggai's name Feast. Well, it's the same reason why Haggai, as we will see and we have seen, focuses so much on dates. It's because this book is ultimately a book about feasting. This book is ultimately a book about a festival. You see, in one of the prophecies in chapter 2, talking about perseverance, Haggai says this to Israel, you are trying to build a temple right now. This is part of the plan of God. This is a priority to God, both relative to worship and witness in this world. And you are discouraged because your temple looks nothing like Solomon's temple. And you think this is a big disappointment. And Haggai, on a specific day, the day of the Feast of Booths, a feast that celebrates how God was faithful to Israel in the wilderness and brought them home. On that very day, what he makes a prophecy is there. He says this, there will be another day. This very day, maybe a hundred years from now, maybe a thousand years from now, we don't know, but there will be a day when Israel will be regathered. And on this very day of this very month of this very time, we will regather and we will celebrate the same feast we are celebrating now together. And everyone will remember of what we did on this day years and years and years ago. There will be a day when Israel will celebrate the Feast of Booths once again. And they will remember that they were faithful in the days of Haggai. That's why Haggai's name is Haggai, because he says there's a feast awaiting the people of God. There's a feast awaiting the people of Israel. And God is so faithful that he will even keep the very day. He will keep the memorial of the day so that his people will celebrate that moment 
in the end. This is the book of Haggai. It is a practical book that encourages people to be faithful to God because God is far more faithful. Because God is far more faithful. And as he has gone through repentance and reproof and obedience and encouragement to persevere, he has even talked about the blessings of obedience, showing that God does reward those who come to him and pursue him. And we said the first of two blessings is that relationship with God. Give me Jesus. That is the most beautiful thing. You say, but there are two blessings that Haggai gives. That's correct. And in the final part of this book, he gives us the second blessing. And if the first blessing was so beautiful, the beautiful thing that we have personally on this earth, and that is there is nothing better than a relationship with Christ, what could surpass that? What could surpass a relationship with Christ? What could be better than that? Well, Haggai says, let me tell you the most, most beautiful, magnificent, weighty, important, significant blessing of obedience. It's not just a relationship with Christ, it's Christ. It's Christ. Relationship is what you have, and that matters, especially since we're kind of selfish. We like it, but there is someone even greater than that. That's Christ. And we know, even as Job says, even if Christ struck us down, he is still worthy. His worthiness is not dependent upon what we get out of him and all the blessings that we experience in knowing him and all the privileges it is to have fellowship and relationship with him. He is worthy in and of himself. And therefore, to have any bearing and any contribution and any way to honor him, that is the crown jewel of obedience. But to really grasp this, and this is really Haggai's presupposition that everyone would understand how great an honor it is to honor the son, we need to reflect a little bit and briefly upon the grandeur of Christ, why he is so worthy. And Really, you could have a whole bunch of Sundays, essentially an eternity of Sundays, to reflect upon the worthiness of Christ. That's, in fact, what we will be doing for all eternity. But let me just give you some brief thoughts. You could think about why is Christ worthy. You could start at the beginning, so to speak. He is the one who made all things. He is the one who is the transcendent one. He is the one who is uncreated. He is the one who is truly awesome. When you are in his presence, you understand how weighty and worthy he is because he is not like us. He is not a peer. He is in a category altogether separate, and we understand that. That's in part what makes him worthy. <clears throat> And here's what's astounding then, we can move from the beginning to the middle, that this one, this one who is uncreated, transcendent over all, the one who is Lord and creator of every single thing, who is independent and only one who is independent and autonomous of every single entity in this world because he is categorically separate. Why would he, when the dust that he made 
and spits in his face, come to die for the dust. That makes him worthy. It makes him worthy that when we, who he would have equal glory in destroying and in punishing and in crippling and in his vindication of his wrath, exerting that against us, at the moment we were completely helpless, he pushed us aside and he took our place so that the wrath of God would not hit us, but only hit him. He's the one who is the light and stepped into the darkness. He didn't have to so that he could save us. Often in our lives, we are so thankful to people who do us a favor. We think about it. Oh, you got my groceries. I'm so thankful. Oh, you gave me this wrench for a minute. I'm so thankful. And we have a list. And it's good to be grateful. Don't get me wrong. What kind of weight of thanks should we give to someone who saved your life? Not just for a minute. Not just for a lifetime, but for forever. He saved you. You never face anything really bad for the whole existence that you have because he took your place. Because even dust was valuable to the one who is transcendent. That's a worthy savior. In fact, this is why God says there is no other savior. He's the one who truly saves. Every other salvation is not even a salvation. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's limited. His is true. His is the final. And his then cost the most. And he paid it with joy. That's a worthy one. And if you say, I, I, I know these are true, but I can't get my arms around how magnificent and weighty it is, then maybe we shouldn't go to the beginning. Maybe we shouldn't go to the middle. Maybe we should go to the end. And maybe we should see the scene in Revelation 4 and 5 where the heavens are declaring who is worthy to open the scroll. Who is worthy to seize it and to exert the final stages of the culmination of God's plan? Who is worthy? Who has paid it all? Who is the one who is able to do that? And no one, no one comes forward. No one in all history, in all the universe, in all the world, in all the ages, no one comes forward but one, but one. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he seizes the scroll because he is so worthy. And then he exerts all of his judgment, which centers on him, and everything is remade. And then there is the millennial kingdom. And there is a fascinating text. I love this. Psalm 22. We often think about the beginning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that passage. But we fail to think about the end of the passage. The end of the passage is the end of the story. You have the cross at the beginning, but at the end of the passage, it says this, I will declare my name to my brothers. Already, you got to know that the Messiah is going to be resurrected. How can he declare his name to his brothers when he's dying in the first 10 verses? Of course, there's a resurrection. But here's what the text says. It says that Israel 
those who could not keep their soul alive, they are resurrected because he is resurrected. They will come and worship him. And then the next phrase says this, Two verses later, it says, and all the ends of the earth will come, even those who would go down to the dust. These people, when you go down to the dust, you're dead. We know that. Genesis chapter two and three makes that abundantly clear. Even these Gentiles though, they are raised from the dead. Why? Because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the ends of the earth will go and declare his glory and his righteousness. That's what Psalm 22 says. And so at the end of Psalm 22, there is this scene. It is the scene of the millennial kingdom. It is the scene of the entire globe, the entire world, from one end of heaven to the other end of heaven, from every corner of the world. They are all facing one direction. They are all facing Jerusalem, and they are all trying to get there. Why? Because simultaneously, from one end of heaven to the other, the whole world is announcing a greater gratitude for their Savior. That's what happens in the millennial kingdom. The whole world, all you see is a sea of people. And they are saying in every nation, tribe, and tongue, thank you to the Lord Jesus Christ for saving my soul. Thank you. I could not have survived without you. The reason I'm here is because of you. That's what you will see in the end. And that scene is so great. That scene is so magnificent. Isaiah 53 says this, he will see his seed. Who are the seed? It is the seed of Genesis 3.15, the godly line, those who are in the ultimate seed, the final eschatological Messiah, and he will see his seed, that seed. And it says this, and he will be satisfied. He will be satisfied. At that moment, when he sees every nation, tribe, and tongue, all the elect that he has bought by his own blood. That will be such a great moment that the Messiah himself, the Son of God himself, will be satisfied. To put it this way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God says, here's your answer. The Son is worthy. The Son is worthy it is abundantly clear that there is no one greater, no one more spectacular, no one more captivating. There will be one in the end, and it will be so obvious, so visible, that he captivates everyone, the entire globe. It will revolve around him. We know he is worthy, which means there is no one more worthwhile to serve than him. No one more worthwhile. We know that. The scriptures testify to that. 1 Corinthians 4, what is the job of a servant but to be found faithful? 2 Timothy 4, Paul, under great trial, even at the point of about to lose his own life, what does he say? There is in heaven stored up for me the crown of righteousness. I'm not going to lose, I'm going to win. Why? Because he will see his Savior. Honoring Christ is everything. We know to be with Christ. And the hopeful expectation of Paul, even in Philippians 1, is to honor him. Matthew 25, we're familiar with this. Well done, good and faithful slave. We know that. We know the power of those words. They only make sense if you understand how amazing Christ is. And for him to say those words to you, now that's an honor. 
that's a privilege. And if you don't understand that way, think about an inverse, not to be negative. Mark 8 reminds us, says this, that if anyone is ashamed of my words, I will be ashamed of him before the angels of heaven. Would you really want Christ in the end to say to you, I'm ashamed of you? And that's what you carry for eternity? You're the one Christ is ashamed of? And if you say, no, that would be horrible, now you understand. Now you understand. There is no greater reward than to honor Christ, for him to acknowledge you, for him to recognize that he used you for his glory. There is nothing greater. There is nothing greater. And so in light of this, Haggai, Haggai says, you want to know the greatest blessing of obedience. Haggai has guided us through every step of repentance and rebuke and and obedience and perseverance and endurance. And he's even given us one blessing, which is to know Christ. But he says, there's something even greater than that. There's something even better than that. And it's what we've been talking about all along, which is this, it is to honor Christ. The honor of Christ is the loftiest of all effects of obedience, the loftiest of all ramifications, and thereby the greatest motivator. When you are discouraged, and when you struggle in sanctification, and you wonder, it is so exhausting, it is so tiring, why do I keep keeping on? Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy, and this is all worth it. This is all worth it in the end. That is what Haggai teaches us. And he's going to present this to Zerubbabel specifically in three points, three points that talk about the supremacy of honoring Christ. And let's go to the first of those three points now, and that is it is the supreme honor of honoring Christ. The supreme honor of honoring Christ. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. The word of Yahweh comes a second time to Haggai in the 24th day of the month. You say, a date? Oh no, another one of those. Does it really matter? Do dates matter? Of course they matter. Everything matters. This is the 24th day, and just to recap some important observations here, the 24th day of this specific month is the time when Israel began official and direct work on the temple. Yeah, they had a lot of preparation work, but at this time, they have relayed the foundation that was laid earlier, but now they had to redo it all. And so now in doing that, this is their initial obedience. This is God's immediate reaction to all of that. And all of that is to say that God, immediately honors them, and not only does he immediately reward them, and that's just spectacular in and of itself. You don't have to wait, even though God can make you wait. God also honors obedience that's even initial. Israel hasn't finished the temple. Like we said before, often when we talk to people about their obedience, they say, hey, look, I started, and we say, okay, that was nice, but you got to finish it. God, in his mercy to us, doesn't do that. He immediately 
rewards even our initial obedience. He is that eager to have a relationship and reconcile with us. This is part of the mercy of God. And so on the 24th day, as Israel is truly beginning the whole construction process, as Israel has initially obeyed the Lord, God has mercy on them and he rewards their obedience. And all of that is true. All of that is true. But here you have an interesting observation. Notice the phrase. The word of Yahweh comes to Haggai a second time. You say, why does it come a second time? Because God gave a prophecy on the same day to Haggai about reconciling with him about give me Jesus, about why it's so wonderful to have a relationship with Christ and how obedience facilitates that. That was already given earlier in this chapter. And so on the same day, God comes back and gives another revelation. And this is highly unusual. In the book of Haggai, Haggai loves dates, but he has a strict policy. God has a strict policy in Haggai. One prophecy per day. That's the policy. You go through the book of Haggai, there's one date, one prophecy. Then the next one has a date. And how many prophecies does it have? One. How many times does the word of Yahweh come to Haggai? Once. That's it. And so here, though, after over and over and over for months seeing this pattern, Haggai gets a surprise. Everyone gets a surprise. God says, I'm back. <laughs> what? One per day. Not today. Not today. And you say, why? Why does God do this? It's the same reasons why you see in detective movies and films and books, the detective asks a bunch of questions, and then he gets to the door, and then what does he do? He turns around and goes, one last question. It's at the last minute. He slips it in. And the last question is usually, you're guilty, aren't you? And then that's how the whole story ends. We understand. It's the same reason why children, they latched onto this, whether they watched a, a detective movie or not, they have a conversation with their parents. They're a teenager and such. And right before the exit, they turn around and they say, and I'm about to spend $750. Bye. And they just walk out. You say, wait, they're gone. Everything at the last minute is often safe for the most crucial information, the most important question, the most important thing. What we are talking about here is God doing something deliberate. He has broken the pattern on purpose. He has made a pattern on purpose, and he has broken it on purpose to make an emphatic point. There is something that is so important to him, he can't wait to talk about it. He's not going to wait to the next day. He's not going to wait to a later date. There is something so important to God. He saves not only the best for last, he saves it so that he breaks the pattern. And when you're talking about blessings for obedience, this reflects then that this is the greatest blessing of all obedience because God is so eager. God himself is impatient to speak of it. And what that all reflects then is how much God loves his son. How much God loves his son. Why? Because if there is something he can't wait to talk about, it is his son. It is his son. And we know that. Sometimes we gloss over these passages, but we need to remember them and remember what they exactly mean and what they communicate about God's disposition, the Father's disposition to his son. Psalm 2. Today, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, a professor, mentor of mine, reminded me once that you have to understand the forcefulness of such a statement. Psalm 2 technically could be said this way. You are my son. That's a fact. I mean, Jesus is God's son. That's a fact. But that's not how God is saying it. He is declaring it. You are my son. I am for you. You are everything to me. This is not just a rehearsing of information. This is a declaration of pride and glory. That is what God is toward his son. Likewise, Isaiah 42, in you is all my good pleasure. All of it, all of God's delight, all of God's joy is tied up in his son. Here is where we have things backwards as modern Christians at times, especially in light of the cults. When we say the word son, and when the term son is used in scripture, sometimes we get nervous because of the cults falsely twisting this word. We often view it as, oh, well, if you're the son, you're not the father, so you're inferior. Or, oh, you're the son, you're not the father, so you must be created. This is what the cults have cultivated and twisted in the definition. But in the Bible, it's It's the opposite. It's the opposite. If you're the son, you're the most beloved of the father, which means you're not inferior. You're what? Supreme. In the Bible, if you're the son, you're the inheritor of everything the father has. You're not subordinate. You're what? You're equal because you get everything the father has. Son is not a diminutive term. Son is the most honorable term. That is is what is going on in scripture. And God loves no one more than he loves his son. And so if there's any topic that God is going to talk about, and he's gonna break the pattern, and he can't wait to speak of, and so he comes back twice and does that in Haggai, it's going to be about the son. And already everyone, including Haggai, would know if God has to come back, if God wants to come back, If God has an extra message and he's gone out of his way to do that, then whatever is about to be said is the most important thing of all. And there is no one more important than the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why the date matters. Because it accentuates that for the Father, the one who is supreme is his Son. God can't wait to talk about him. So therefore, he must be supreme for us. He must be supreme for us. He is supreme to God. He must be supreme to us. We need to get our perspective and our priorities right. Well, that being said, that is the supreme honor. Now let's get into the supreme plan. The supreme plan. We just talked about that To God, the Father, there is no one more beloved than the Son. And we're about to see that on display. That's not just reflected and exhibited and implied and inferred from the date and what God does there. It is more than that. It is what God does, what God plans for his Son that illustrates 
There is no one greater than the Son, and there is no one more worthy than the Son. So let's look at verses 21 and 22 in light of this. It says this, I will, I will shake the heavens and the earth. That's the end of verse 21. I will shake the heavens and the earth. That's what God says. Now, when we talk about shaking heaven and earth, we might remember that earlier in the book of Haggai, Yahweh declares that he's going to do that. In a little while, Haggai 2.6, once more, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And so everyone might be saying, well, Haggai, you're just repeating what you said earlier. God, you're just reiterating what you said earlier. And there is overlap. In Haggai 2.6, the context was, don't be discouraged, Israel, about your building of the temple. I'm going to shake heaven and earth, and I'm going to make sure that what you do ultimately will have the most glory ever known to man. I'm going to rearrange the entire created order and all the nations to make that happen. But if you look and compare, compare and contrast, Haggai 2, verse 21 and following with Haggai 2, verse 6, you're going to notice while they start the same, while they start the same, they're different. They're different. God is going to do something different. Yeah, it's going to be at the same time. Yeah, it's going to be connected, but it is different. And you say, what is the difference? Why is there a change? Why does God describe things differently? What's the topic and theme of what is happening here? Well, God already tells us that in Haggai 2.21. Notice it says, say to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. You know what's interesting about this prophecy is that it is written, it is directed to one person. One person. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. And you say, why is it directed to just one guy? Well, poor Zerubbabel. He's gotten the brunt of everything in this book. Who gets rebuked first in Haggai 1? Zerubbabel. Who has to repent first in the book of Haggai? Zerubbabel. Who has to lead Israel in collecting the wood and, and organizing the efforts to prepare to rebuild the temple? Zerubbabel. Who is the guy who has to encourage Israel to continue to persevere in their obedience? Zerubbabel. Who is the guy who has to monitor the, and manage the construction efforts on the temple? Zerubbabel. Why? Because Zerubbabel is the leader. Zerubbabel is the leader. And on one hand, we learn through this the responsibility of leadership Yes, as well as the reward. Because God says, Zerubbabel, I know. I know I've been picking on you all the way through. I know you've always borne the brunt of it and you've had to do it first. But I will reward you. I will reward you. And on the other hand, here's what you learn. That God cares about individuals. God cares about individuals. He does not overlook the efforts of even one person. One person he assigns a task to. Now that's an amazing God who knows not just what people do in groups, not just what was accomplished by a team, but each individual contribution, and he will honor it. That is a very good God. And the way God will encourage Zerubbabel is actually seen, ironically, in his title. Zerubbabel is not a king. What does the text say? He's a what? Governor. There is no king in Israel at this time. It's a glaring 
omission. It's a glaring omission. You always have a king in Israel. Have you noticed this? You always have one. Ever since the time that there were kings, there's always been a king on the throne. And there were priests at this time, but there's no what, right this moment, king. You only have a governor. And so what God is going to show and why this is different than before is simple. How do you make a governor into a king? How do you make a land that has no king have a king? What will God do to pave the way for the true and final king to come? That is the agenda. That's in part why he also talks to Zerubbabel. It is to encourage this one in his individual obedience to God as, his, as he carries out the responsibility of a leader, to be sure. But at the same time, he's talking to Zerubbabel because he's going to show, and Zerubbabel's the best candidate to show it to, how he's going to pave the way for his son. That is what is going on here. So what does God do for his son. Well, he does a global work, that's for sure. Look at the ending of verse 21. I, as we've read before, will, and I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. We might wonder, what does this mean? Does this mean that God will physically shake the planet? And the answer is actually yes. It is. In Revelation chapter 6, it talks about how when God, when Christ opens a seal, it, God will shake the earth so hard that even the stars will be shaken and the mountains and the islands will be moved out of their place. And that is a physical shaking. This is the greatest earthquake you have ever seen. In fact, there are other prophets who have said, this will be the greatest earthquake ever known up to this point of history. That is the absolute truth. God will actually physically shake this place. And he will, in doing so, when obviously the mountains are moved and the islands are moved and the stars are moved, that is the shaking of the entire created order. Everything will be reorganized. And you say, why does God do that? Well, for one, to judge. God is opposing anyone who has opposed his son. He will not tolerate those who have dishonored and offended thereby his son. On top of that, this is the way God announces his son. That's why some of the judgments in Revelation are trumpet judgments. They're blowing the trumpet to announce that God is coming on behalf of his son to fight for him. So there's announcement. By the way, that should tell you how much God loves his son. I mean, when you walk into a room, who announces you? And don't feel bad. We're all there. We all should be humble. When Christ comes in the world, God shakes the entire planet so that they get their attention. That is how worthy the sun is. And along that line, God shakes the whole earth, moves mountains and islands, causes stars to fall to remake the world for his son. This is extreme home makeover world edition. <laughs> this is God saying, this world has become so disordered, it does not please my son and I will only give the best to my son. And my son deserves every molecule of this planet to be perfect for him. So it will be remade. And he shakes the whole earth for that purpose. You wanna know how worthy the son is? It is this, that God says, you will have this world and it will be perfect for you. 
That is how worthy the Son is. This is a supreme plan. You want to know why it's a supreme plan? Because it grips the whole world. It grips the whole world. Sometimes when we watch the news, we watch the world news. That's what that's called. Why is it called the world news? It's called the world news because it happens outside of the state of California. They even include in the world news things that happen in Arizona. And it's considered world news. And then you have, of course, things that happen in other countries, and and that matters too. Do not get me wrong. But world news is rarely ever things that affect the whole world. This will make the world news. Because it not only affects every single country, it actually affects the world, the physical creation. And God says, I will have a plan that does that. I will have a plan and I will have activity that the world has never seen before. It will truly be world news because my son is worthy. That's a supreme plan. It's not just global. That's not the only reason why this plan is so supreme. It's also dealing with government. Also deals with government. Notice verse 22, it says, I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. Notice here the way that God talks about things. It isn't just saying nations. It's not just saying countries. Notice it uses the word kingdoms. What does the term kingdoms emphasize about a country? Not just that it has a geopolitical region or a geographical location. It emphasizes that it has authority. It emphasizes that it has a domain. It emphasizes that it exerts dominion. It emphasizes if it's a kingdom, it has a king. And for that very reason, notice the focus is not just that there's a kingdom, it's the throne of the kingdom. Not just the heads of state, not just the leaders of the nation, not just the princes, not just the nobles, but the what? The throne. The epicenter of the kingdom the epicenter of all authority, what is absolutely central, what has the final say, so to speak, it is the top leader of everything. That's the focus of this kind of government, and that would be meaningful to Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel, he understands something. He understands the power of a king. He understands it because he understands how kings, by one word, by one edict, by a casual decree, it can halt the entire construction of the temple. He experienced that. He understands that by one decree, a king can facilitate something or shut it down. He understands that kind of power. And he understands also how central kings are. In fact, it doesn't take much to see it even in the book of Haggai. Have you noticed? Look at all those famous dates. Look at all those famous dates of Haggai. Haggai 1.1. In the second year of Darius. Everything is linked with Darius, who's a king. It's always about, it's always linked with the king. Verse 15 of chapter 1, also Darius. Verse 10 of chapter 2, Darius. Over and over and over, the king is so central, he even defines your calendar. That's how central he is. There is a notion about government, particularly ones of the top leader. They have power, massive power, and they have massive centrality. We understand that. But pause one second. By the way, here's what's fascinating. Remember how I said date after date after date? It's all about Darius. Look at verse 20. Whose name is missing from this verse? Darius. Why? Because he won't be the king. 
ultimately. This prophecy is about the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king. So Darius' name is not mentioned because he's no longer going to be the center. That is Darius. Think about that. Think about that. Well, Zerubbabel would have understood the power of a king. And even to this day, we understand that kings and rulers and leaders, head of state leaders of countries are so powerful. They say one careless thing, you're in a war. They say and do one thing, people will starve. They say and do another thing, people grow wealthy. They say and do another thing, you can have disorder. We understand that. We have experienced that. And we also know that these heads of state, they are the focus of all attention. They're the ones that the cameras are surrounding. They're the ones who everyone wants to have a statement from them. They're the ones who make it on the news. They're the ones who grab people's focus, concentration, and attention. We know that. We are bombarded with that. And compare that with the Lord Jesus Christ in our modern society. No one wants a statement from him about world events. No one seeks to hear what he has to say. At best in our world, Jesus is cute. That's at best. That's the best case scenario. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not cute. He's the king. He's the king. And one day, that will be known. What does the text say? It doesn't just say about thrones of the kingdoms. It says, I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. All of the authority structure, all of these rulers, and all of their power, power by even one word to change the economic, social, legal, political status of a country, all of that kind of power, it will be overturned. All of that focus will be overturned. Think about it this way. The word overturned doesn't just mean absolute destruction. That's included. Sodom and Gomorrah, it was overturned. Same words. You know the devastation. You know the decimation that happened there. It's the same idea. But the word overthrown or overturned means to turn upside down. That's what's going on here. Their authority will not just be checked. Their authority will not just be negated. It will also be completely flipped upside down. Those who are high will be made low. Those who had power will have none, and all of their power will be recollected and re-centralized in who? The Lord Jesus Christ. There will be one ruler. Now, everyone's eyes are on many rulers. Now, everyone's understanding is that there is authority in many different places. Then, in the future, it will be with one. You know who the topic of world news will be in the millennial kingdom? Christ. Every day, for 1,000 years, you will have one headline, Christ. That's it. Because everything will be changed. You want to know why this is the supreme plan? Because it changes the entire focus of the world. It changes the entire focus of the world. The whole infrastructure of the world will change so that there will be one. Not many, one. It's not just global. It's not just government. It's also international. It's international. Notice the next phrase. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the countries, of the nations. 
say, what is the difference between this word and this phrase and the previous one? The previous one focused on thrones. This one focuses on the strength that kingdoms themselves have. Because if you think about it, countries, they got power. Countries, they got strength. It takes might and strength to maintain the infrastructure within a country. It takes might and strength to defend a country from another country. And of course, it takes might and strength for a country to overcome another country when that takes place. You have to have power within countries. And we even know that might flows. And there's a pecking order of countries. There's a structure of how every nation is arranged in this world. Zerubbabel knew that. That's why he struggled because Israel isn't a powerful country at that time. It's on the low end of the totem pole. And so they've got to pander to and ask for help from all the different nations and get authorization to build the temple. They knew they were on the bottom level of the totem pole. And we know that nowadays. There are countries we know that are powerful. We know that there are countries who make everything on the planet. We know that there are countries who are mighty in their military. And then we know that there are countries when people say, hey, have you heard of this country? You say, I don't even know that that was a country. We know that. There's a way that all power is arranged. And speaking of Israel, you can even see it illustrated in certain ways even in the modern day. I was reading an article once about 2020 and UN resolutions. There were a total of, I think, 23 resolutions of condemning nations. On that list were nations like, the, like North Korea and Syria and Crimea, and they had condemnations. Each of them had one. Crimea had two. And there were six of them, or five of them, rather, and one got double. That's Crimea. You say, what happened to the rest of the 17? Israel had 17 world condemnations from the UN. Now, you might say, well, maybe they deserve some. Okay, for the sake of argument, let's say they deserve some because they did wicked things. What country does not do wicked things, first of all? But second of all, when North Korea... Iran and Syria only get one, you have to ask yourself, what did this country the size of New Jersey do to be so vile that they get 17? The way power works in this world is corrupt. We know that. We understand that. In fact, it's so corrupt that people think they understand how corrupt it is, and they're just adding to the corruption. That's what's going on in our world right now. They think, oh, tear the system down. You don't realize you're tearing it down to build an even more heinous one. That's what's going on in our world. But it will not always be so. In this world, the bad guys win. We know that. This is a sinful world, but it will not always be so. What does our God say? I, not you, not man, not Israel, not the church, not the elect, no, I, God, will what? Destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. I will bring it all down. I will tear it all down. There will be a day, brothers and sisters, where good wins. When righteousness conquers. When things are the way they are to be. Why? Because God brings down the wrong and restructures it all in his son. That's why. You want to know why this is a supreme plan? Oh, by the way, before we get to that point, let me just make this one remark. You do realize how massive a power it will take to accomplish such a task. 
You have to understand that. In the scriptures, this is the inspired view of history, there are only seven world superpowers that will ever be in existence. Count them, seven. You say, what are the seven? Well, let me make sure I can do this. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the kingdom of the Antichrist. That's it. You say, wait, the United States is not part of that. We might be powerful, we might be influential, but we don't own the world. We don't own the known world like those other countries, those other empires did. And to change the world power balance, to change and reconfigure it all, that takes massive might. It's only been done, hasn't even been done fully yet. It's only will be done total seven times in the world, history. And we haven't even gotten there. The United States isn't even that. God says, I will do it once and for all. That is how powerful our God is. That's what he does for his son. And that is the supremacy of his plan right there. It is an international plan. You want to know why this is a supreme plan? Because it redoes how the whole world works. It redoes how the whole world works. Well, we have one more kind of idea here, and that is it's not just a global plan, it's not just the plan that affects every government, it's not just international, it's in its implementation. It's in its implementation. Notice the final phrase of verse 22, it talks about this, that he's going to, that is God, going to overturn chariot and rider, and he's going to bring the horse and its rider down, each man with the sword against the other. The military, the chariot, the, the most advanced technology of the might and dominion of the army, this is the way power is implemented. That's why when there's a coup, it's typically a military coup because the military has to get involved because they're the most tangible, direct expression of authority and power. That's why we talk about a police state or we talk about a military regime because that is the most tangible, most expressive, most direct, most physical expression of power and authority. It is the implementation of authority. A politician can wax eloquent, but unless there's a military to enforce it, it means very little. And so what does God do here? Especially since this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the power is. Notice what God says. He doesn't just bring it down. He does overturn it, to be sure. He does turn it upside down. But in fact, the wording is further described just to show you exactly what he means by it. Notice, the horses and its riders will be brought down. You say, why? Have you ever noticed, and I didn't know this growing up, horses are tall. They're not short. That's a pony or a carousel ride. Real horses, they have height. That's one of the reasons why they're so devastating on the ancient battlefield, because they're taller than you, and they can just walk on you. This is true, especially back then, because people were shorter back then, too. That helped. <laughs> but all that to say is, what is high will be brought what? Low. That's what the text says. And notice the sword of each man against the other. This is utter chaos. This is utter disaster. This is the complete cannibalization of power. And in fact, these kinds of scenes are found in other passages of scripture. Recall the battle with Gideon. Each man starts to turn against the other. They have no power anymore. That's why people, they had 
the horn in one hand and a pitcher in another hand. Notice what they don't have in their hand, weapon. They can still conquer them. Why? Because they have no power. Second Kings chapter three, it talks about how the nation had, they thought, the nation of Moab thought that Israel and other countries had killed each other. And then they went in because they thought that there was no power there. This, when you have people destroying each other, what you have is the total implosion of all authority and might to the point where there is none in existence anymore. Do you understand what God is doing here? What he is doing here is he is not just saying, hey, other nations, they got power, but I can check that. Other nations, they have power, I can negate that. Other nations, they have power, and I can overcome that. That is not what he is doing. What he is doing is this. He says, other nations have power, and I'm going to drain the power so that they have none anymore. Why? Because all authority, might, and power will go to his son, to the point where there is no other military, no other might, no other army, no other way to oppose him. All authority and might go to the son. You want to know why God's plan is supreme? Because it's total. It's total. God leaves no stone unturned of authority that he will not drain and deliver to his son. That is a supreme plan. What you have here revealed to Zerubbabel is God saying, I'm going to do something amazing. I have a plan that reaches the globe, that takes care of every government, that's on an international scale, that deals with implementation. I will deal with the created order. I will deal with power on every single level. I'm not just going to reorganize it. I'm not just going to reconfigure it. I'm not just going to rearrange it. I'm going to drain it all out. Why? To give to his son, because that's how much he loves his son. That's how worthy his son is. You know, thinking about the scriptures and even thinking about our Savior, we often hear the phrase that all glory, honor, and power belongs to him. And our Lord says in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. This should help us understand what that means. You see, sometimes I think we think that all authority means that Jesus just has a little bit more than others or that he's going to share the limelight, or he's going to be one of many, or he's going to be just an important, very, very important part of this world. That is not what all authority means. In this case, all truly means all. It means all. It means all the authority that you see in every single nation on the planet. As you look at a map or spin a globe around, all of the authority found in every single one of those countries recentralized in Christ. All the authority that keeps the world the way it is in a structure will be reflowed to Christ. It means this, that the depth of all that authority and all that it can execute and all that it could do and all that it can implement, it is all in Christ. He possesses it all. And not only does he possess it over every single nation, he possesses it over the very physical heaven and earth. He has every single ounce of all kinds of authority, all in himself. All really does mean all. And we will see it in the end. And you say, that's staggering. It's even hard to get your head around. Yeah, because you've never seen that kind of power before. 
Every kind of power you've seen on the news, every kind of power you've seen in this world, it's restricted. It's restricted in scope because it's not one country over another country. And even within a country, sometimes there are checks and balances to restrict that power. And it's certainly restricted in its depth. It cannot do every single thing. But what you're going to see for the first time is, whereas in our lives and in our history, power has always been in some ways limited, in Christ you will see for the first time something that is truly unlimited and unrestricted. If you want to know how worthy Christ is, just meditate on what God will do for his son. That he would do all of this change the whole world around, remake it, shake it, topple every single government, topple every single power structure, topple every single military so that there's only one. And he won't stop until that is. That's a worthy son. And for us, we need to understand that living for him then is the most worthwhile thing ever because there's no one more worthy than the Son. And what is done for him is the only thing that will last. That's why God is talking to Zerubbabel. He says, look at this plan. And you're wondering if what you're doing is worthwhile? This is what will last. Zerubbabel and us as well, because in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this exhortation that God one day will shake the heavens and the earth. Have you heard that before? He's quoting from Haggai chapter 2. And he says, because he will shake the heavens once more and that there will be things that are shaken away, let us pursue that which abides. Let us pursue that which remains with joy, offering proper service to our God with all reverence and awe. You want to know why obedience matters? It's simple. Everything in life will pass. Only what is done for Christ will last. And that's what Zerubbabel is reminded of. Now, speaking of which, that gets us to the third point, and that's the supreme blessing. Here's the opening words of verse 23. On that day declares Yahweh of hosts. What day are we talking about? The day that God totally rearranges the world. That day. And he's going to do exactly what he intends to do. He's going to rearrange it around his son so that his son is the one and only. And that's exactly what's going to happen. On that day, when the whole world is rearranged and when the dust settles and all the people who remain, they have one focus and one fixation. What will God show them? This is amazing. He says, I will take you. He's talking about the Messiah here. And with the words, I will take you, it shows that the Messiah is exalted. Why? Because he sets him apart. When God takes somebody throughout the scriptures, even the physical action of taking, it is to draw someone out from a group and to single them out. And God has done that with his son. God will do that in the future. And not only is his son exalted, but he's epic. Notice, he's called my servant in verse 23. There are lots of servants of God in the scriptures, from David to Moses to Joshua to Caleb. But Christ is the ultimate servant. He does what all of them were supposed to do, and he fulfills it in himself. And the whole world will see and know on that final day, he's the ultimate one. He is truly epic. He's exalted. He's epic. He's also the executive. Notice it says this, that I will place him, I will make you, the Messiah, like a signet ring. A signet ring is the ring that stamps in the clay the, the signature, so to speak, of the ruler, so that 
the decrees are executed and laws are made into laws. The one who owns the signet ring is the one who bears that authority. And for Christ here, everyone would know he's the perfect signet ring of God. Why? Because he's the perfect bearer of divine authority. Why? Because he is God. They would know that on that day. It's not just that he's exalted, epic, and executive. To be that and to overcome that and to achieve all that he has done in the plan of God and fulfill all that he has done, of course it's clear. I have chosen you. And so here is the scene. The whole world has been changed and the son is exalted as God says, I have taken you and he takes Christ and exalts him before the whole world. And we know he is epic because he's the ultimate servant. And we know he's the perfect executive because he's the signet ring of God. And we know he's the elect one. But what does he call his name in this prophecy at that future time of the Messiah? He says, I will take you. What's the phrase in verse 23? Zerubbabel. All of a sudden, everyone should pause. At that moment in the future, God will call his son, not Jesus, but who? Zerubbabel. Because Jesus at that moment will be like Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel will be, have been like who? Christ. Why? Because God did elevate, in a way, Zerubbabel. He kept picking on him all the time in this book. And Zerubbabel might have thinking, why are you picking on me? And God says, you got it wrong. I picked you. I picked you. I didn't pick on you. I picked you for the purpose. We need to remember that. And Zerubbabel was God's servant. He did a very important work. He built the temple, just like Christ will build the temple in the end. And Zerubbabel, even though the, the signet ring of God in the Davidic dynasty was cast off in the time of Jehoiachin, in Jeremiah chapters 22 and chapters 23, even though that was the case, Zerubbabel maintained God's authority. Zechariah 4 says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And Zerubbabel will complete the work. Zerubbabel began to reclaim what it meant to be the signet ring of God. He didn't do it perfectly, but it was turned around a little bit there. And he continued the line a little bit there. And all of that shows the fact that Zerubbabel was able and will be able to finish the temple that he is elect, that God chose him for that purpose. And so in all these different ways, as Christ is finishing the millennial temple, people will say, man, that's just like who? Zerubbabel. And here is what Zerubbabel learns. Zerubbabel, when your life passes, and in fact, when all has passed, what you did for Christ will last. That's what you know. There are some applications here. There are four quick ones, and I'll just give them to you rapid. You need to remember this, the wisdom of God. How brilliant is God to orchestrate such a plan that even these small moments are for his glory? It's the mercy of God, because how kind is it that God rewards people who don't deserve it, and we think God's picking on us, but actually God what? picked us. That's the mercy of God. Here's another one. Clap for Zerubbabel. I think people miss this. You say, why would you clap for? Because he's going to have that honor. I'm going to clap for him in the one hill kingdom. That's on my to-do list. <laughs> we rejoice with those who rejoice. What an honor for Zerubbabel. And why is it an honor? Because to be used by Christ is the greatest honor. 
And that's the fourth point. To be used by Christ is the greatest honor. Brothers and sisters, Zerubbabel learned at the end of this book that what he did for Christ lasts. Everything else will pass. And he was part of a great plan. And yes, we're not Zerubbabel, but to be fair, neither is any other Israelite in Israel at the time. God used Zerubbabel to make a point that he is doing more with our obedience than what we might think. And it is to the ultimate end, the end of his son. So what you do for Christ, it matters. There is no greater joy, no greater joy than to understand and hear the words from Christ, the one who is so worthy, the one who is the center of this world. Well done, good and faithful slave. We need to remember this. One life to live and all then will pass. Only what is done for Christ will last. Zerubbabel will be there. May it be our heart to be there too. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, make us those who desire. Make us those who remember the Lord Jesus Christ. And when times get hard and tough and obedience is difficult and sanctification is arduous, may we remember it's worthwhile for the sake of our Savior, who is worthy, who is above all governments and the globe, above all nations, who has the power of implementation of all in the end, who has all authority. It's worthy for him. Give us that strength and may Christ be honored. In your name we pray. Amen.